Welcome back to another episode of the Photographer Mindset Podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Macy. And I am your co-host, Aaron Manis. And this is a podcast, if you're unfamiliar with it, with it, where we talk about the mindset of photographers, innovating that and growing our mental fortitude, developing better strategies, and ultimately trying to optimize to achieve our own version of success in this craft, whether that's artistically commercially or both. And today we were joined by Rachel Bradley, also known as Small Soy, Small Soy Creative. We find out why that's her handle across socials, which is, I, I told her that it was the, uh, she won the handle of the day award because that's mm-hmm. quite, quite memorable. Uh, Rachel's worked for some clients such as Lululemon, Bacardi, Southern Australia Tourism Commission. The list goes on and on on her website. And we had a pretty interesting discussion. She mentioned that you know, her first big stint with the camera was actually photographing her papa's wake, which kind of took you and I back, I think. But the point was that she had to find, she had to be able to uh, take photos in an extreme level of discomfort, which I found interesting. Yeah. She, she walked us through that, you know, situation and that challenge and how it kind of gave her the confidence, you know, in, in many other situations moving forward. I loved her sensitive nature and her empathy. I felt like that was her secret weapon in creating these moments between clients, between people. The ability to capture these emotional moments Mm -hmm. um, was just, I think, very striking. uh, And I enjoyed talking to her about that stuff. Yeah. And very, she mentions, you know, noticing small cues in body language that's going to lead to a great moment. So if you're somebody who's, you know, photographing weddings, elopements, or just events in general, uh, you know, we tried to get into how you know how do you how to front run that moment before it happens that you're ready to to click the shutter she's also an ultra runner right yeah which you know you and i have gotten have been getting into running so it was interesting to hear i think we we uh, talked about that for a bit in that um you know if you can do an ultra marathon where else have you been holding back in your photography Mm -hmm. career in life and it also kind of opens your eyes to you know damn if i can run you know, 50 kilometers plus or 26 miles plus in a single bout, what else can I do? Right. So I think that was the importance of that. And, uh, what else should we just get right into it? Let's just get into it. Let's Let's just get into it. Let's listen to it. Let me ask you this before we even get started. I said this in our, when we were texting, what is small soy? Come on. I've been wanting to know the answer to this for <laughs> what, the better part of three weeks now? Your handle small soy. What is that? Because that might be one of the most memorable, the most creative, best personally branded hashtags I've seen in a while. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> it was actually my coffee order. What? It was always, I always drink a small soy latte. Oh, um, and when Instagram first came out, I was um, trying to work out what's my Instagram handle going to be. And I walked into my local cafe, and all the people that were working there, as I walked in, they just called out "small soy," and I was like, "Ah, oh, that's kind of like a name." <laughs> and then used that as my Instagram handle. Um, and then when I started my photography business, because my name is Rachel Marie Bradley. Mm-hmm. I think there were maybe 10 other Rachel Marie photographies just in my state. So it was like, what can I, what name can I use for my business? It's going to make me stand out. Um, and I just went with small soy. Yeah. And you also have a small soy hike club. What's that about before we get into some, some photography stuff? Um, I, so I moved states a couple years ago just before COVID happened. Okay. Um, and I'm a big hiker and runner. And I didn't really have any hiking friends, so I thought I'll just start a bit of a community-based hike group, um, try and make some friends that will come hiking with me. And I think it's also a great way to just make hiking accessible. So I think for a lot of people, it can be really daunting if you want to go for a hike, trying to figure out well, where can I go, what trails are going to be easy for me if I'm a beginner. Um, and so I thought it was good to create a space for people to be able to just rock up and not have to think too much about it. Right on. I love that when um, you're going looking for something that maybe doesn't exist and so that you, so then you create it. Yeah. There's something so awesome about that. Filling a void, filling a void perfectly. Uh, so let's get into some photography stuff. I've, uh, I've 
read your website and you mentioned how a camera was put into your hand and you're asked to photograph the day of a very somber event, which I found interesting. Can you sort of describe more of that, uh, that day and your, how that affected your relationship with your camera and how that event has, you know, affected you and your photography to this day? Yes, that was a really interesting experience for me. It was at um, my papa's funeral. Yeah. Uh, my, I had family that flew in from all over the country for it, and my uncle is an incredible photographer. Uh, it was just when I'd first started taking photos, and he had he just bought the Nikon DF. I think it had just come out. And I was just like, oh, my God, this camera is amazing, just going a bit nuts over it. So then on the day after the funeral, when we got to the wake, he gave me the camera and he said, if you want to be a photographer, then you need to get comfortable with having a camera in front of your face, even in uncomfortable situations Mm. like at a wake. And he told me to just told me to try and capture the story of the day. And so I just took the camera, I was walking around. It was probably one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done. No kidding. Um, Yeah. But I think it taught me a lot. It really, like, it really did teach me how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it taught me, I think, just that it's okay to have your camera as an extension of your arm. How, so forgive me for being so vague, but how do you even approach that in that sense? And furthermore, how do you find the comfort in the discomfort in that? scenario specifically and how does that transfer over do you think into other uncomfortable situations I think at the time I was a very um shy and anxious person and I think I don't know I think I was just like oh I just have to do this it didn't even feel like an option for me I think I have a personality type where I like to put myself in uncomfortable situations and I like to see I guess what happens from it and so I think that was just the beginning some people listening are like feeling the anxiety of that, <laughs> putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. What's the satisfactory, you know, what's the reward in that for you? I think you're a different person when you come out on the other side of it. And I think it's all about that just personal growth and just seeing, I think just the challenge, seeing, um, seeing what happens. I think it's exciting. Do you ever give advice to people who maybe see you living your truth? Aaron calls it living your life is your argument. So in this sense, you know, you're doing things that are uncomfortable on purpose and people are seeing this and maybe they ask you, how do I do that? Do you ever come across that? And if so, uh, you know, what do you tell people? I haven't had someone ask me that before. I think people usually just say, um, what's wrong with you? Um, but I would say, I think just do it. I think, I think it really is just if there's something that you want to do and you think that it might be, yeah, uncomfortable or difficult, I think just have to, just have to do it. Otherwise you never will, which feels like it's not really advice, but it really is just, you know, take that first step. I think the advice too, we talk about this sometimes is not thinking as ridiculous as that sounds when you get the paralysis of analysis. And you just sit there thinking, 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 thinking too much. And then you, you, uh, the fear builds up, the anxiety builds up and then you're, you're frozen. I think just turning your brain off. And like you said, just doing stuff is a great, uh, first approach. So even though you think that that's not really the greatest advice, I think that's more or less maybe the message, you know, just stop thinking. Oh, definitely. I think, um, I don't think a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I also think you, I mean, you mentioned anxiety or being anxious and it sounds like that could be the anecdote a little bit, like slowly quelling that anxiety that one may have. If you don't push yourself through the anxiety, that anxiety can build or have a hold of you. If you push yourself through it, through that discomfort, then your, your brain can say like, oh, I was this anxious. That wasn't that bad. I survived. And now next time when I feel that I can sort of remember and recall these moments of getting through something really tough and just feeling like you may still have the anxiety, but you're maybe more able to witness it versus it take over you. No, I think that's like a hundred percent correct. It's very much, um, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about, I run really long distances and I was talking about how I'm a different person every time I finish like one of these big races. And it's because yeah, in my life, 
if an anxiety inducing situation comes up or something that might be stressful comes up, it's you get to a point where you're like, well, I did this really hard thing the other week. So why is this going to stress me out? It doesn't seem to have the same hold on you after yes. you want That's perfect. And I mean, we, we found your work and we're like, we got to have her on the show. And then I saw a runner in your bio and I was like, yes, because people listening know Aaron and I recently in the last you know year or two have taken up running a lot more seriously. So that was just a bonus to see that in your, uh, in your uh, bio. Mm-hmm. And so while we're on the topic... Uh, I, you, you kind of alluded to it here, but how has your relationship with running and exercise improved your life as a creator? We all know it has good health benefits, you know, mindset benefits. How would you make the connection to running and improving your life as a as a photographer, as a visual storyteller? Um, I think there's a few things. I think coming to talking about like mental well being, I think. There's a lot of, I know when I first started out, I had a lot of imposter syndrome or mm. I would turn up to different jobs and I would just have the worst anxiety. Like, like well, it is imposter syndrome. I'm not, I'm not good enough. Why did they hire me? And I think running so much helps me keep all of that in check. Um, and then I think from a more creative point, I've found running on trails, I end up going to these really cool places and seeing these really interesting things. And now I've started taking my camera with me as much as I can. And I think I'm able to photograph maybe different areas that a lot of other people don't get to go to. Um, And it makes me want to go back to these places and start creating in these spaces that I get to run through. That's awesome. What kind of, so when did your running journey commence? How long have you been Uh, running? I've always run. Always. Uh, seriously like started taking it very seriously in the last couple of years so i got a running coach and oh, wow racing very poorly but i still race <laughs> <laughs> what mm-hmm. distances like what kind of races so i do ultra marathons uh oh, here we go done. <laughs> it was 100 k's that yeah. was end of last year um <sighs> so usually i think my normal racing range would be 50 to 100 that's awesome. We did have an ultra marathoner on the podcast a few months ago. Uh, not a photographer, but just uh, this was when Aaron and I were, you know, had no idea what ultra was. I mean, you know, I don't know, Aaron, if that's ever in the cards for you, but that's a ways away from me if I ever even wanted to approach that. <laughs> but yeah. just the 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 mindset of this is going to hurt, but I'm going to get through it is so effective for so many other areas. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but I did it. So like, what else, what else am I holding back in a, and what else, you know, what else can I do? Uh, what other areas can I improve in and give maximum effort? Yeah. It's pretty crazy how much you learn about your mind and how much you actually can push through. I think we sort of have a threshold. And then when we reach the wall of that threshold, we think, Oh, like mentally, like I'm done. I can't, push any further I can't do any more than that but you've actually got so much more capacity past what we Mm -hmm. think our threshold is and I think it's really interesting when you start to push to that line and then see what happens when you get over the other side of it right because then you have that once you do go over the other side of it at least for me I start thinking you know I'm not doing ultra or ultra marathons but you know I've been upping my distances a lot in terms of running and it has me thinking where else have I you know where else have I quit early? Right. Yeah. Where else have I not uh, given 100% because I thought I had been giving hundred percent up until this point. It was, it's almost like you trick yourself. Right. And running is a, or exercise or anything difficult is a way to have a, an aha moment in terms of, I may be slacking a lot and not realizing in other areas. Yeah, for sure. It really does show you like in so many other areas of your life. Like where, yeah, well, you said where you're slacking, where you could right. be doing more. I Absolutely. think there's, there's so many different avenues too of this practice, even like meditation, you know, if you can sit quietly for 20 seconds, that's a start, but pushing that, that boundary to be able to sit with a still mind for 20 minutes or 25 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. Um, a lot of people think like, there's no way I could do that. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's just pushing that boundary. I'm happy, Seth. I have to say that uh, in the last like two weeks, people around my neighborhood have been like, "Hey, I, I saw you running outside," and I'm always nice. like, "Oh, was it a running part or a walking part?" And they're like, "No, it was a you were running." And I'm like, "Yes, that's great. That's great." They didn't say I saw you walking out. I saw you running. So I'm like, that's good. That's good. It's a Dude, good I follow you on Garmin and I must say your miles are ticking up. I'd love to see it. Thank you. Love. Still very small. We're not in the, we're not in the oh. range yet, but. I love to see it. My favorite part is that my stride is as long as yours. <laughs> I know. I don't get that. You're going quicker. Rachel Aaron, 6'5". Just, yeah. uh, you can't oh. see his legs. <laughs> a Clydesdale runner. That would be my Big grouping. Time. In the That's US, it. The Clydesdale. <laughs> so bring it, reeling this back into photography and we're talking about, you know, pushing, as you say, pushing that threshold. How do you find ways or, or do you, uh, how do you find those ways to push the threshold with the camera? You know, it's not physically exerting. This is more of a uh, mental, it's a hundred percent mental in this, in, in this instance. Hmm. Um, I think I like to challenge myself a lot. Like I, I do, I think I was watching a, so Peter McKinnon YouTube video a while ago and he was talking about not taking as much gear with him to shoot and using that as a way like, you know, instead of having five different lenses, I'm only going to take the one lens with me and then it's going to force me to push my creativity. I think mm-hmm. I like to challenge myself in ways like that. Like, well, what if I shoot this whole event just on a 50 mil lens? Like how is that going to make me move through the space differently? And right. how's that going to change the way that I take photos? See, it's interesting though, in that instance, you're, you're, you're pushing the limits on an event where you're expected to execute. Maybe there's money involved. How do you balance that level of stress while also pushing the limit? You know, cause some people might say, I can't imagine not at least having the option at a place where people are counting on me and paying me, right? Like that's, that's a whole different uh, ball game. For sure. I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to an event if I didn't feel confident right. that I would be able to execute what I'm doing, um, where I'm getting paid. I think, yeah, it, you practice more when you're not getting paid to do it. And then Absolutely. when you know that you have that under your belt and you know that you can like, well, I will shoot a little bit differently, but I know that I can still deliver the final product that the client wants. Right. With pure. Fine. Yeah, with pure confidence. So in the last 10 minutes, you mentioned how you used to be anxiety-ridden with imposter syndrome just showing up to an event, and now you're you know, removing gear when you go to the event. So for people listening who maybe struggle with imposter syndrome, what's that journey like? What helped you? Oh, that's a good question. I actually don't know what changed for me. I was actually thinking about that the other day. I for so long, just every event, every shoot that I rocked up to got such big imposter syndrome. And the it's only been the last few months where I've started feeling really confident and comfortable in the spaces that I'm walking into. I don't know if I can actually put my finger on what changed for me. I think it might just be repetition and how many projects I've been doing. Do you find uh, it's an interesting debate, the difference between self-esteem and confidence um, and how they play into each other? Uh, and does one feed the other, or the other feed the other? Um, so you said you you do feel confident going into an event or it's recent that you feel confident, but do you think that confidence builds the self-esteem like I am good at this versus I will do well at this? Like there's, there's a little bit of a difference between confidence and believing in yourself. Has yeah, that really, changed throughout this, you know, this journey? Yeah, I think so. I, um, yeah, definitely. I think the more, you know, if you're feeling more confident, you're going to be self speaking in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's going to, I mean, improve your self esteem or you're going to feel better about what you're doing. Um, yeah. It's interesting that there's no kind of, it's just sort of, I don't feel this way anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Is it because, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to formulate my, my thought here. Uh, because I've had moments of like that too, when I've entered a scene that's exactly similar to, you know, 
times before when I've been ridiculed with nerves, maybe not to the point of crippling anxiety, but very nervous when I'm thinking to myself, not necessarily imposter syndrome, but just like, oh, like lots of things could go wrong here. Just kind of jitters, right? Jitters. And, uh, you know, I think there is, it's important to distinguish the difference between imposter syndrome mixed mixed with anxiety that is so bad you can't execute and performance anxiety where you care so much that that's the root of your nerves you know what i mean i get nervous before every big shoot and i'm confident in my ability if that makes sense and i was always that way with sports too before you know in this instance it was hockey so it would be a puck drop i was nervous right up until that happened and i think what's important to remember is that if you've executed before and you have the hours of experience that you can always remind yourself that in pressure situations and situations that require a lot of execution and there's a lot on the line, you always fall back on, on good training and experience. And I think when I remind myself of that in those moments where maybe performance anxiety is getting a little bit too high, you know, the, the autonomous nervous system, the nervous system's getting a little bit too aroused just to remind myself that you have the, you can fall back on that good training. Maybe when your mind isn't working so well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really, I think you've put it really well. I think it's something that I know for myself, I probably have to deep dive into a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think, I think thinking about it a little bit more, I think organization helps a lot. I think that is, um, I would go into shoots and I would feel, I think when I had that imposter syndrome at its worst, I'd feel like I'm not, what if I forget something? Like what, like what's going to go wrong? And that right. would just go through my head so much. Um, but now I have some really good systems in place before I go to my shoots. And so there's, it takes out like any way of forgetting anything, like leaving gear at home or I've got like my shot list, like everything is just planned out and set out. And so then, yeah, maybe you do have those nerves, but you know that you can fall back on your organization and your planning because you know you've done it before and you know that you know what you're doing. Yeah, that's my that's my highest anxiety is packing before a trip because it's just oh, like, yeah. it just feels like it's the one domino that you can miss. I forgot all my camera batteries or I forgot my whatever, you know, just the one thing that like breaks the link and you're in trouble. You know, so that to me, packing, I, I spaz over that, like look it over a hundred times, but I think that's very true. The organization and preparation. Um, and I found too, that almost like moving slow, you move slow to move fast. You know, like if you get into like that frantic sort of, um, trying to get every photo, just hundreds of photos, like if I take every photo, I won't miss any of them. Like that mindset can sometimes get you like stuck versus having a list or a shot list to slowly refer to and be like, okay, I wanted to check off these 10 things for sure. Like, let's get the first one. Let's get the next one. Um, kind of like slowing down to, to see things maybe from a little bit of a zoomed out, uh, vantage point versus being so like stuck in the moment. I think tends to help me at least in, in those moments. Oh, definitely. I think shot lists and organization changed my entire life. I used to be a very mm-hmm. frantic person as well. Um, I used to be so proud that I thrived on chaos. And when I look back at the way that I used to work, it just stresses me out. <laughs> yeah. That's How funny. did you work used to work compared to now? And what are some of those protocols, you know, you're saying about, preparation organization can you allude to some of those i think my attitude used to be just wing it to everything it was um very it served me well in some ways but it really didn't do well in a lot of other ways i was a Mm. wake up five minutes before i have to leave the house and throw everything together and get out the door sort of person but now it's wake up early have a routine everything is becoming a lot more streamlined. Everything happens at a certain time. Everything's written out. And it's just, yeah, it is taking that time to slow down. Right. definitely makes you feel a lot more in control. Yeah, I like that point of slowing down. I was just at a uh, cabin the last two days, beautiful A-frame, shooting it. And 
old me would have done the frantic, got to run around, shoot everything, disorganized. That looks good. Oh, that looks good. Get distracted. Right. And then that's when you miss some of the stuff that you really wish you'd captured when you're gone and offsite. And so to Aaron's point this time around, I was really focused on almost like a mantra, slow down, be slow, be slow, go slow to go faster. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the ways that I find that that's a, a great way to institute that is to take much longer exhales, right? It sounds silly, but you know, for all of us who know human physiology, when you, when you have a longer exhales than inhales, right? Your heart volume decreases, your heart rate slows down, and it's just a physiological method of slowing down literally with your heart, just longer breaths. I find reminding myself to slow down and then doing things like that, I get so much more of my list done efficiently and smoothly as opposed to just running around frantically. It's like when you type a, you're trying to type an email so, so fast and you're making tons of grammar errors and spelling mistakes. And then Mm -hmm. you go, if I had just written slower, I would have actually been done quicker because I wouldn't have had to backspace and do all these fixes. It's sort of similar to that in my opinion. Yeah, no, that sounds, um, yeah, just slowing down your breathing and taking that time to slow down. Right. Yeah. yeah, I've also thought in, in like the cap and shoot's a great example because the ability to bring a laptop and 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 chunk up the work and say like, okay, I'm going to shoot for a while, I'm going to edit for a while, I'm going to reassess. Like that ability versus the days when I wasn't bringing my laptop and just shooting, there's a constant anxiety of like, I don't know if I have enough. I don't know if I have enough good stuff. Like I better get a ton more before I get home and try to edit this stuff. But the ability to edit, you know, a, a, a nice sunset and look at, wow, I just got like six great shots. My deliverables are 10. Like I'm in great shape. I can kind of really slow down and and just assess as we're going. Um, that's another thing that's really helped me. And I think that goes with organization and being able to just be the most efficient with your time. Um, that's something that's helped. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I'm definitely going to start doing that. Taking the laptop to a shoot is such a great idea. Mm -hmm. See, that's so interesting because I do the opposite. Like I, I didn't open it at all or put anything into Lightroom because I don't want to, maybe it's my personality. I get distracted easily. I get excited by the next fun thing Mm -hmm. and, you know, hopping into Lightroom, there's the fear that I'll get too bogged down into this, that I won't focus on the cabin in front of me right now, I'll be in digital land. Right. And that's the same with me on vacations too. I don't edit on vacation like any time or, or, you know, like, no. So maybe, maybe that's, we're similar in that instance, but I just, I don't know. I'm the opposite. I can't bring the laptop, but I can see the point you're making in the sense that like it could teach you to slow down, to stop shooting frantically and to maybe um, assess what you have. I do have enough stuff. Yeah, especially the cabin really is nice for that because there's a lot of, even though there's two hours, there's a, for me, there's a couple of key moments, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, and then what can we get in the in-between to me? And those in-between times, it was just nice to, instead of sitting there kind of like waiting and getting anxious about, I hope it's a good sunset. I could like do the night before, get that work done while I'm sitting, having a cup of coffee, enjoying the cabin. And actually it's a pretty nice shot, like a workspace, an additional little deliverable. Like here, here's me working at your cabin. Um, but it sort of slows down that mental, like, ah, like just that waiting, that anxiety to go shoot maybe too, to get the work done. And also being able to leave the cabin and go home and deliver and say like, all right, I'm done. I can wipe my hands of this and like move on to the next thing. I don't know. Just that's, that's my thought on it. But I agree with you in terms of vacation. I don't like bringing my laptop. I don't want it to get broken or stolen or hurt anyways. Um, and it's a vacation. So I don't have the need to like, I need to edit all these and post all these. That doesn't matter. I want to enjoy it. There you go. Very good. There you go. Very good. So Rachel, food, couples, boudoir, landscapes, products, books. Is there anything you're not shooting? Um, (laughs) It seems to me like you're not, you know, we see very much online, like landscape travel photographer, portrait photographer, street photographer. You don't really fit the archetype of one of those like entirely, 
but the best word I've come up to sort of describe your work is you're a visual author. Um, And so how does being able to effectively tell a good story make you more naturally inclined to better shoot all genres of photography? I hope that question makes sense. So, I mean, in other words, what is constant in the ability to storytell across all genres of photography? Um, Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I think, I mean, storytelling is such, I mean, that's, that's how I see myself as a storyteller, not a niche photographer. Um, right. I think I just like to, I just, it's all about, for me, it's about like the details and emotion. And I think in any event, if you can capture the details and the emotion or any shoot, then that's what tells the story for me. And so I really try and think of what details are people not capturing and what's something that's like interesting or different that I can photograph that might capture like, I don't know, a bit more of the day or a, or a different detail of say like in like a boudoir shoot, I was thinking, well, they're always sort of done in this way, but I like to see this detail on say a piece of underwear before I buy it, or maybe I'll do these close-ups. Maybe I'll look at um, shooting through a window. So it looks like I'm looking in on a scene rather than just the, the woman in the scene. Right. Do you know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. And that sort of sounds like it comes back to slowing down and thinking as opposed to just moving about a room, standing in different spots and pointing at whether, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, um, you saw you shoot shots and books or, um, you know, a beer can, or I think it's going to be so easy to get into that workflow where you're just kind of moving around a room aimlessly, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think the difficult part and why I wanted to talk to you about this is, the moment from I see something going on that would make a good moment because it's filled with emotion, negative or positive, that signal flow to your finger to click the shutter is a very intricate and difficult process, but it's night, it makes you know a night and day difference between those who are exceptional at getting the story across and those who struggle. Yeah. I think um, especially when it's human emotion and those little moments at a event, um, I, I always struggle to explain to like my friends, you know, if they're coming to an event with me that I'm photographing, trying to explain, probably not going to be able to talk to you at all. Cause my, my brain, I feel like I'm trying to read like everyone. Like I'm always just looking around at everything that's going on and trying to anticipate those moments before they happen so that when they do happen, I'm ready with my camera taking the photo. Right. So yeah, I'm just, and I I really want to dig into this to give listeners more because, you know, it'd be easy to say, you know, uh, storytelling is moments, which is true, but I really like to get in there. Um, So you mentioned you're trying to spot these moments and anticipate them before they happen. What are some cues that, you know, send your neurons firing? I think, watching the way that say if someone's having a conversation I'll sometimes I will just look at a couple that might be having a conversation at an event and I'll just hover around them maybe for like 60 seconds or two minutes with my camera because they have like a small smile on their face and they look like they are about to erupt into laughter or seeing the way that uh, someone's touching someone else on the arm or like you can sort of see, well, they're about to say hello. And then I think they're going to go in for a hug afterwards. And so if I get at this angle, so if they do go in for that hug, then I can get this great sort of smiling, hugging shot from an interesting angle up here. And I make sure that I'm trying to read those small cues and then position myself so that if it does come off, then I can get the shot. A lot of time they don't. A lot of time I'll just be standing around and just be like waiting, 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 and then nothing happens. And then you you you're boring. (laughs) (laughs) What's more, you know, what's more interesting to you when that moment that you're expecting to happen happens, or when something totally different happens, but it's still, you know, a moment. 
Oh, when something totally different happens. (laughs) I guess that was a dumb question. Or when you like (laughs) take what you think is going to be a great photo and then you whip around and you see something else and you have to just like quickly be like, please let me get this one. And Mm -hmm. like, they're always the great moments too. Right. So it sounds like at events and with people, you're, you're mostly reading, you know, body language. I guess there's not really many other indicators. What about uh, moments? How are you creating moments with inanimate objects, with books, with, you know, wine glasses? What are you looking for when there's not that additional variable of human behavior? I think I like to think, what could the story be? I like to create a scene that is to me, like it could just be, well, maybe the story is someone's just having a beer outside and they put their beer can down. But then I like to think, well, what were they doing? What I sort of build the scene in my head of like what that person could be doing while they're drinking that beer. Maybe they're reading some books. Maybe I I think actually, I think I did some with a a wine and a whole heap of books. It's like, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. I think out their bookshelf. And like drinking a wine while they're spring cleaning, but let's make it look really aesthetic. And so then I would take that idea of a story and then try and build that scene around the object. Right. Uh, you know, how far, I guess what I'm trying to, one of my other additional questions is, so for example, I'm looking right now at a shot, uh, Montero wines, no affiliation, just looking at this photo here. Um, you know, to what extent are you manipulating the scene? Like this person has Converse uh, shoes on, tattoo on the calf. Like, is that just by chance that that was the person you were using? Or is that, is, I, my question is how much of your photos are scripted and how much are you molding to what you have? you know, making it work with what you have. This episode of the Photographer Mindset Podcast is sponsored by iStorage. iStorage makes state-of-the-art, ultra-secure, and easy-to-use hardware-encrypted portable storage devices, which is just a fancy way of saying they make the best password-protected hard drives so that you have total security over your data and files. I've got a one terabyte SSD hard drive from iStorage called the Disk Assure M2, and it is flipping awesome. Compact, easy to use, and it gives me total ownership over my digital assets so that I'm not worried about theft. The thing's even waterproof. The devices are protected against brute force intrusions. They have independent user and admin pin codes, are password and hardware encrypted, and they'll work on multiple operating systems without the need for annoying software. They'll work on any device with a USB port. Some of their devices even hold up to 20 terabytes, and if that's not enough, they also have encrypted cloud storage so you can easily manage and share your data securely in the cloud. If you're a business owner, consider iStorage encrypted hard drives to build trust with clients over sensitive information, build your brand reputation, and avoid heavy expenses involved in security breaches. There's a 30-day evaluation program for organizations and government bodies. Use the code TPM15, that's TPM15, for 15% off your order when making a purchase on their website. Click the link in the episode description to check out their product line more in-depth. Products are also available on Amazon. Um, It's a little bit of both. Uh, That was actually me. Uh, (laughs) I was using my boyfriend as my I like to call him my human tripod um (laughs) I bring him along to shoot sometimes if I'm having to self-shoot products and I want someone in the shoot but I've got no budget for a model then he'll come along and help me out and just snap some shots so I set him up and set everything up but yeah I think I I know for that one I tried to find an interesting location I thought there's this rooftop car park with a really cool views of the city, like how nice would it be to be drinking wine at sunset in a car park? And then when we got to that space, I was looking at all the different locations within that space. And I think just building scenes in that space. Right. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Um, So then how would you describe, furthermore on this topic, how would you describe your ability to take most genres of photography that you're doing and really make them, you know, this is my opinion, they're fine art as opposed to just another photograph. You know, what is that? What's involved in that, that fine art element? Great question. Um, I think 
I think it just comes down to, well, I don't know, maybe the, um, like is a lot of that editing. I think, I think a lot of it is editing, but then yeah, a lot of it is, I, I think, yeah, probably a lot of it would come down to my edits because I, I did actually send off some raw photos to someone recently. And I just said to them, you're probably not going to get anything out of this. Cause I think the way that I see the photos or I try and shoot the way that I edit, but then when I edit, I like to be really creative with how am I going to crop this? And sometimes some of my favorite photos that I've taken, I've cropped right down to just the tiniest detail within that photo. And I think taking that time to play around with the way that I'm editing the photos as well really helps put that maybe into that more fine art space. I love that you said that. I think we can often forget that crop is one of the most powerful editing tools. I think we avoid the crop if it's not, you know, we all crop the five, four, but <laughs> who's like, you know, crop five, four and really in though. Right. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just trimming tops and bottoms. Yeah. I think that's really important. I found that myself uh, a bunch of times where, wow, if I zoom, if I really crop in on this section of the photo, this is entirely different. And I used to find myself getting married to the whole photo that I took out of camera as opposed to magnifying and examining what it could be by eliminating a lot of other parts of it. Yeah. One thing that I always try and tell myself while I'm editing, especially when I'm cropping down, is I I ask myself, how much of this photo do I need? And how much of this photo can I get rid of to still tell the same story or to still showcase what I want to showcase? And right. then sometimes you just, I just find myself cropping and you're just going like in further and further and further and further and going, well, I actually didn't need any of that space around the outside. Yeah. Right. That's not the story you want to tell, right? You want yeah. to zoom into the story. I think I'm going to make a statement here um, that might be obvious, but I think it's important to point out is that there, I think it's pretty clear you're, you're a highly sensitive person and empathetic and feel emotions. We talked about anxiety earlier. We talked about pushing through, suffering, discomfort, all those things. You feel. You're a feeler. I think it's pretty clear that that is a superpower in photography. When you are scrolling through photos on Lightroom or, or looking at all the photos that you click, to be able to see and pinpoint the one that shows emotion in the face or you can have some sort of empathetic view to like, what is the story here is definitely a superpower versus who that person looks the best in this photo, like visually or, or the most like a model or they're the best looking in this photo. I'm just going to pick this one versus like, Ooh, there's, there's something deeper here. And to be able to see and forecast those moments of emotion is definitely a superpower and I'm wondering if it's something you can train. Um, and I guess that's my question. Do you feel like that's something you can train or do you feel like, I mean, Seth, I think you would agree that people that we've had on the show, that definitely is a, a theme in terms of their talents or innate talents is this sort of empathetic, able to express feeling, emotions, talk on a podcast, uh, all those things. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because, you know, we have people, there's so many different personality types that people have. And there's a lot of people who are great photographers who probably lack empathy. And that's not, you know, that's not a judgment. I mean, just certain personality types are prone to being more empathetic than others. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, you and I have both done those, uh, the 16 personalities thing, which I find really interesting. I think everybody should do the, that, the 16 personalities test, mm -hmm. um, find out if you're extroverted, introverted, you know, sensitive feeling. I don't know, Rachel, if you've done that before. I I think I have. Is that the, the, the a few letters and numbers? Yeah, yeah. it's probably an INFJ. Do you remember what yours was? I think that might be what it was. Yeah. See, <laughs> Aaron's got it down. Aaron, what were you again? An INFJ. I, I, I can spot them. That's so interesting. Yeah. Most people, it seems that I've that I that I've talked to, end up introverted. I don't know. It's strange. Yeah. I'm ENTP, which I don't know. I haven't met anybody else like that yet. That's why I'm absolutely insane. So <laughs> I, I, back to my point, I just think it's important to also realize just based in your character where your strengths and weaknesses will affect you as a photographer and how maybe if you're lacking empathy in finding those emotions in people 
in, in shots. You're going to have to find a way to, you know, maybe you're not going to be the best visual author, as we're saying here. Maybe you're better off, you know, shooting more polished, technical, commercial grade stuff. Right. And maybe that's just a matter of fact and there's no better or worse way to do mm-hmm. things, I guess is my point. Yeah, definitely. It's just, just different. But right. I, do, I do think you could, if it's something that you really wanted to do, you absolutely could train it. Mm-hmm. I think it's just about that, like slowing down and learning how to read a situation or read a, read a emotion in a photo. And I think it just takes practice. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something else that I, I mean, I, I think it, it definitely clicked with me is like there's almost a game in photography uh whether it's product shots or um you know the the wine and telling a story like there's a there's a game that's like "Ah, i don't want to do what it's already been done a thousand times you know there's like going to a cabin you can fall into like like i try really hard not to look at the instagram of the cabin really close to when i'm going because i don't want anything to influence the shots that I'm trying to take or be like, Ooh, I like that. Or I'm going to copy. Like, I just want to, I want to find, I want to find the little angles or something like it's that game. Do you find that game? Like, is, is that a thing? Am I making this up, Seth? Do you find it? Do you find it, Rachel? It's funny because you're mentioning the cabin thing. Mm -hmm. So I do the exact same thing. I don't really want to see what everybody else has done because then I'll get plagued by that. I feel, but what I did do on this particular cabin that I just finished up was I looked at the Instagram at the end of my shoot to see if there's anything iconic that I've missed. Just, you know, those kind of staple mm-hmm. photographs for my own portfolio. Cause I know they already have a million of those cause everybody who's been there has shot that, but it's almost like, uh, if you go and look at the Instagram and you have a lot of what's already there, you feel good in the sense of, okay, I have signature moments, and you feel good in the sense of, I have a lot of different things as well. Or if maybe you've missed some things, you can say, oh, okay, that's an easy shot. I'll go do that just to, just to supplement what I already have. See, I think I do the exact opposite. I will very heavily research. Um, for instance, I did a shoot recently where we went to, it was just like a really big mansion and we were doing boudoir photography. I think there were maybe six other photographers there and then a whole heap of women were coming through. And I wanted to see how every other photographer was shooting and what their style was. And I thought that was so interesting. And I, I love to see that so that I can then think, how can I do it different? And how can I like, what what angles can I use or how can I stand out and make my work different to what everyone else is doing? Mm-hmm. And I find that to be really valuable for me. Yeah. I like when you say a whole heap of women came through. <laughs> it's the second time. <laughs> it's just a great way to, I'm forever saying a whole heap of from now on, Seth. Hey, so it's get a ready great for way it. to express. A yes. whole heap of? A whole heap of. Yeah. What's a heap? <laughs> a, a pile. A heap I of guess. laundry. I guess. A heap yeah, of I've laundry to do. There we go. There we yeah. go. Um, let me ask you this. What have been some of your biggest mistakes or learning experiences that have, you know, pushed you forward? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, biggest mistakes and learning experiences. I think biggest mistake I ever made was not exporting a gallery onto my computer and hard drive as soon as I'd finished working. Um, and I ended up losing all of that off the memory card, um, later on, couldn't recover it. And that was a really big learning curve for me in terms of organization and how important it is to just back up your photos, keep everything organized. Don't mess around. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. Oh yeah, that was not a fun one. <laughs> Luckily it was a free shoot and it was very, very, very early on in my career. So no one was out of pocket, right. but it was very stressful. Right. Not an email that anyone wants to write to a client. No, 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 no. Along those lines, that question, what, what's the, the most transforming moment in your life if you had to describe who, what makes you who you are? What, what moment in life has just carve that trajectory for who you are? Oh, that's a good one. I don't 
know if there's a single moment. I think it's just accumulation of all the people that I've met. And I think I've been very lucky um, with the people that I've had in my life. Maybe in terms of photography, it was when I was uh, 18 and started dating my first serious boyfriend and he had a 35 millimeter, I think it was Zenit XP12. Um, and he gave me that camera and taught me how to load a roll of film. And I was just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. I need to do more of this. And like that started a complete obsession with 35 millimeter photography. I think that maybe that would be the most defining moment for the trajectory cool. of my life. What do you feel film teaches or can teach people who have only ever known digital? I think it it teaches you to slow down. I think it teaches you to be really intentional with every photo that you take. Um, I think it really teaches you how to learn all of your settings. I think digital can be really easy, especially when you're first starting out. It can be really easy to, oh, what if I just, I'll just use these auto, auto white balance or auto everything. I think when you transition to film, you have to know how to read light and you have to know what your settings are and you have to be like so intentional with every photo you take because it's costing you every time. Right. Yeah. We, uh, I remember at the end of our last retreat, Aaron, remember we were having like a, a joke contest to see who shot the least almost yeah. like in a, that's yeah. a good thing in the yeah. celebratory way. Like, Oh, I had the least amount of shots. Yeah. That's uh it's a good thing to just shoot what you think is worth shooting as opposed to spray and pray. For sure. It can be so easy to fall into the trap of just, yeah, mass, mass photo taking. Mm-hmm. I just like rapid fire at this couple. Then I'll like, sure. I'll get one good shot rather than <laughs> yeah. slowing it down a bit. Join the wildlife game. It's impossible to not almost. (laughs) Every movement, you're like, ah. ah." Well, yeah, because it may never happen again. May it never happen again. Rachel, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing uh, your journey with us, some of your insight, what's worked for you, what's made you a better photographer. We really appreciate it. And thanks for adding to the the crew of Aussies that have made it onto the Photographer Mindset podcast. A heap of them. A heap of them. (laughs) heap of australians <laughs> it's good to be on <laughs> thank you yeah. so much i really enjoyed it awesome good.